So I'll start with saying that we have paid uh, at least two black bounties that were exclusively due to, you know, gas culture. Like, oh, we could do this this way, but like, what if we make it like we adjusted like this tiny, like this tiny way and this tiny way? Uh, and at least two of them were like exclusively because we chose to do it the clever way as opposed to the dumb way. And the clever way in some even cleverer scenario uh, was actually not very clever and was very, very stupid. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Devs Do Something podcast. Today's guest is Nicolas Venturo, a protocol engineer at Balancer Labs and former dev and auditor at Open Zeppelin. This episode was fantastic listening for anyone who's interested in protocol level security, uh, the underlying features of the Solidity compiler, and great smart contract design patterns. We cover topics such as uh, the dangers of gas golfing and trying to be too clever. We also talk through Balancer's batching process and custom errors library they built. So you get a bit of alpha on uh, how Balancer actually approaches their dev process. We walk through how Nicholas thinks about the long-term future of our industry and just other really fantastic security and, and overall smart contract design pattern tidbits. So if you're a protocol dev or would like to be a protocol dev, this is a fantastic episode for you to listen to you'll get a lot of, of great insights from Nicholas, and this is something that Josh and I really enjoyed being a part of as well. I hope you enjoy. All right, so we're here with Nicholas. Welcome, man. We appreciate you being here. Hi, nice meeting you. It's great to, to be a part of this. Likewise. Likewise. So we'll go through a lot of different things today. We'll get in into your work at Balancer. We'll get into some of your past work at Open Zeppelin and, and some security things. But I'd love to start off because I think it's a great uh, segue into some other things we want to discuss. But I'd, lo- I'd love to talk through how you got into the space. And uh, yeah, just would love to understand what that journey was like. Sure. Uh, so I started working on Ethereum about four and a half years ago uh, when I joined Open Zeppelin. And that was a bit of like being at the right place at the right time. My background is uh, I'm an electrical engineer and I have been working prior to working in crypto, doing uh, embedded software development for just you know all kinds of applications, but programming essentially tiny microcontrollers in C. And it was just uh, after the startup that I was working for went under, uh, just talking to a friend, it's like, hey, you know, we're working in this new team. Uh, they have a cool office. We're looking for smart people to join the team. We're not asking for any sort of background because nobody knows anything about crypto. So what's the point in asking for experience? And asked me if I was interested. Actually, he he told me we we're going to meet for coffee, uh, but it was actually a job interview, which I found out while doing the interview. Uh, so I wasn't really looking for it. It just sort of happened. Uh, and yeah, it's just been smooth sailing since then. Uh, I suddenly started doing a couple of security audits. I participated in the audit of the actual security compiler, interestingly, because I was one of the people in the team who were 
the most proficient with C++, which is uh, the language CELC is written in. Uh, and then that sort of started shifting into working on the Open Zeppelin contracts library, which back then was just called Open Zeppelin, since the company name was something else. Uh, and the this you know prior experience of working, reading CELC code and talking to Chris and Axic and all of the all of the people working on the compiler itself um, made it so we had a relatively close relationship. We were comfortable asking questions, uh, proposing suggestions and such. Uh, and by working on Open7, which was a library, and uh, if maybe not the first, for sure, at least back then, the largest of its kind, likely even today, uh, we had a lot of use cases for language that were not your regular end user I want to build a token. I want to build whatever. Nowadays, it'd be like a liquid or whatever. Like it's just, no, no, we want to build something for people to reuse. So we we required features from the language that pretty much nobody else was asking for. Um, so that led into being quite involved. Well, not quite involved, but like aware of what's going on in, uh, in its development as a language, what sort of features are. Uh, being advocated for what it's missing. Uh, I personally suggested a couple of features that ended up being merged, such as uh, the whole try-catch syntax, uh, also some stuff with immutables. Uh, so that's all very, very nice. Uh, but yeah, and then two years ago, actually two years ago to this day, I just got a, a message in Slack reminding me of that I joined the Manager Labs team uh, where I've been leading the... Uh, blockchain engineering team, the everything that is blockchain related, uh, except, well, data, you know, like subgraph analytics and all of that, uh, which is essentially mostly smart contract development, but also monitoring, also uh, providing information for like technical assessment on say governance actions, providing tools so that complex actions can be uh, broken down into more understandable components and such. And yeah, that's what I've been doing. This day, which is very, very fun. Nice. That's a really cool journey. I want to get back into your work on the Solidity compiler audits. And I'm curious as to what you think of the, the evolution of Solidity and some other recent uh, new popular low-level languages and things we'll get to in a second. But what parallels did you see between some of your work in embedded software and working with the EVM? I mean, I know there's the C++ connection. Right, but would love to hear any any other comparisons you can make. There's actually quite a few things that I think are similar. Uh, one of them is being distrustful of tooling. Uh, embedded software tooling is terrible. Like every, every single tool is broken. The data sheets of microcontrollers just lie to you, and they state things that are not true. Uh, so when you run into issues. If you're doing, say, web development, right, and something doesn't work, your your first reaction is, oh, I must be doing something wrong. I'll, I'll find out how to do it properly. Uh, but when you're dealing with those things, it's like, is it me or is it something that I'm using that is like maybe misinterpreting what I want to do? Or like, surely some of the fault lies with me, right? But like, maybe it's very likely that the error is being misdiagnosed, right? It's very likely that I'm using something in a way that it's not meant to be used. Uh, not because I didn't read the documentation properly, but because the documentation is just not correct, right? Maybe because like this is not doing what it says it should be doing. 
Uh, so that like basic level of distrust towards tooling error messages in general, uh, which is like it's actually quite quite draining, right? Because you cannot be sure that anything you're you're seeing is true. But it does result in I think different different set of debugging skills, uh, just because of the nature of that. Like a lot of trying to get back to the basics of what it is you're trying to do, why is it failing, what can you observe that you trust is correct in the embedded software development scenario that often uh, involves pulling out an oscilloscope, plugging that in into your into your uh, electronics board and like trying to look at signals and trying to decipher what is going on off of that. Uh, but in this case, the other thing that happens is the EVM, is, the EVM is quite obscure, right? And that is also something that, that occurs in electronics. Uh, what is, like, you, you can look at a printed circuit board, and if the software is working correctly, like, it looks the exact same thing, right? There's nothing uh, to the eye that is different. But it's, like, deep within the guts of, like, what was this registry's value at this point in time? Right? What is, why did this signal go down when it should have now stayed up for 200 more nanoseconds? What happened? Why am I having these timing issues? Uh, why is this event being emitted with this wrong address? Why is this like, you know, like you very quickly go into the same thing of like, I just see effects of what is going on, but the actual execution is quite obscure. So, um, yeah, that rapidly devolves into trying to not run into, into situations where you have deep like gaps of things you don't know what is going on. Like you try to make it sure like it's all broken down into smaller steps, I guess. Uh, so they're all easier to understand if things go wrong. Um, but also trying to get a mental model of how things might be going and try to like be able to quickly spot, oh, you know, this is not exactly what I had in mind. So surely there's something wrong. Uh, which is also something that translates into tests, right? You're testing a thing and you go, okay, surely if I change this in the test, which is now passing, it should fail. And if it doesn't fail, something is going horribly wrong. So being able to quickly identify those. Uh, I think those are like pretty much very related skill sets. And then finally, I guess, being used to be working in resource-constrained environments, uh, be that performance, be that uh, memory program size, uh, having to use non-unorthodox data structures or algorithms uh, that in this particular case are most are well suited to the platform because of requirements, but in a general case, you, it's not what you might use if you were just you know, working on the backend, say, or, or some web app. Um, so, so there's also a lot of that, lots of not being afraid of doing weird things, I guess. Uh, and then finally, also not being afraid of like every so often looking at assembly, trying to understand, like try to piece together how what the stack looks like at some given point, what memory looks like, you know. Uh, but that's that's a dark path, uh, one that I try <laughs> to avoid the, as much as I can. Yeah, Josh here has gone down the dark path a few times, haven't you, Josh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll... Uh... We'll definitely get into that, uh, you know, a little bit more here in a moment. Um, I, I did want to mention though that it is. Um, I've kind of noticed there there are these like parallels of you know like the, these like '80s era electronics and like programming where you have you know that 
you have very limited resources. I've noticed there's some parallels with that, you know, in the EVM, right? Because you have this, I mean, really an economic incentive to minimize compute, right? And minimize data storage, right? So you have these situations where like, you know, when's the last time somebody did bit shifting in JavaScript, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not a, you don't do that for websites these days, but you know, when you have these machines where it's like, you want to minimize as much as possible. I mean, it's, I mean, you see the seaport contracts, right? I, I think uh, there was an estimate by one of the guys working on that the other day that they've saved, I think somewhere, I, I may be totally misquoting this number, but I think it was somewhere around uh, 15 million and, and gas like theoretically has been saved just by using the, the new seaport contracts. You know, those things are like 80% assembly, right? Yes, uh, there, there is indeed a lot of that. Also, some things are like general knowledge, like this is good and this is bad, so you use this instead of that, doesn't apply at all, just because the computational model is different. So for example, both on the EVM and on a microcontroller, linked lists are totally fine. Like you can just use them and they're fine. We actually have a couple of applications uh, on the Balancer ecosystem that rely on linked lists and they're a great fit for the solution. Whereas on a traditional computer, you wouldn't use the linked list because that immediately gets you to cache misses and so on, which are massive performance hits, but there's no cache on the EVM. So, so who cares? Like all storage costs the same to access. Uh, and many microcontrollers also have no cache because like they're just, again, resource constraints. So all of those improvements to the architecture of modern computers that then shape modern software don't exist, which means that sometimes actually old software patterns are more suitable than modern ones. Um, and then all, all of the weirdness in the EVM that comes from the fact that you have near infinite memory uh, that you can magically assume that hashes will never, uh, you'll never have collisions. So just, just do whatever, it'll be fine. Just compute a hash, totally safe. Uh, there's a lot of interesting novel uh, things as a result of that. Totally, totally. So speaking of some of the low level thought processes and languages, have you played around? I mean, I know you obviously went deep into the Solidity compiler. Mm -hmm. uh, we, can, we can touch on that, but have you played around with any of the other lower level languages like Yule or Huff? Josh is a big Huff shill. He loves Huff. Shout out to Huff. But I'm, I'm curious as to what you think. I, I gotta admit, I know nothing about half other than the fact that it exists. But I do know it exists. So I'm not fully out in the weeds. Um, I have used, I mean, I did audit what was the original implementation of Yule uh, a couple of years ago as part of that audit. So I sort of became uh, familiar with it even before it was a thing that was meant to be used. And back when like, the plans to have a an intermediate representation for Sol C were still sort of being developed. Um, in, in terms of like languages in general in the blockchain space, like I, I think there's so some improvement is required, right? Solidity is far from a perfect language. There's many things it doesn't do great. There's many things it's lacking, some of which are actually not hard to implement. Uh, and there's many things that it allows for the like, you know, maybe this is a bit of an unfortunate choice. Maybe it would have been better to like have the default be somewhere else, something else. However, I don't think any language like necessarily would give you a massive improvement in 
either uh, security development time, uh, testing time, any of those. Like I, there are definitely things to improve, but I don't think working in say Viper or Solidity is that well. I, I have a big problem with Viper yeah. not supporting any sort of code use whatsoever. Like every single thing you write, it's like whole thing built from scratch. It's like you know, it's a uh, like encapsulation and reuse. It's like a very basic thing, I would say. Uh, it does make some things easier. Uh, that is true, and that. You do need to, you don't have all of the inheritance insanity that you can end up with in solidity due to it being the only code use pattern that you really have. Uh, and you having to rely on multiple inheritance and the linearization of the inheritance tree and all of the craziness that pops up with that. So like that is not great. But like not having anything is also not great. Uh, single file contracts are nice. It does make submitting verification to it was kind of easier. But I don't know. Uh, so like the, the low level languages, I, I I tend to use Yule mostly for code density. Uh, we struggle a lot with the 24 kilobyte bytecode size limit. Uh, and we've found just experimenting that there's many patterns that result in solidity tends to be very I mean, which makes sense, and it's what everyone thinks about it, but it's very heavily optimized towards uh, execution costs, right? That is like sort of the only thing in mind. And some patterns leading to the code being emitted being incredibly inefficient in terms of how much space they take in the bytecode, right? So if you have like a very simple switch statement, like an if-else chain, right? And it's like very simple values being compared, like maybe with some value against some, like a switch, you know, like a switch segment in the language that did have switch. Uh, if you do that in Yule, like you get savings in the order of like potentially hundreds of bytes, which when you're, when you're 26,000 and you need to get back down to 24K, that's massive if you just, you know, rewrite any fails chain using Yule, uh, which we have done. So that is often when I start using those. Also, if I'm like doing like low level, you know, hacking around, like uh, we do some nasty delegate call magic or like bubbling of revert reasons in some places, or uh, there's a pattern that we follow where we essentially, in order to simulate calls, we make a call to ourselves that then reverts but returns data in the return data of the reverted transaction. So we get a result, even though the inner. Uh, but then we don't revert, so like we actually do return data, but we do have a, a nested reverted transaction. Those things, like you got to do them with with you because like they're, they're like inline assembly is the only way to to go about it, right? Solidity just doesn't support those things. But other than that, um, I don't know. Honestly, I'm more interested in tools that let me reason about correctness, right? Tools that or language features that make me. That let me say this is obviously correct, right? Uh, I can read these three functions and I know they're correct, even in the presence of a much larger contract, because I know nothing that the rest of the contract does is ever going to change what this does. And like it's not going to break, say, the environments set by this. Um, like in that sense, I want for Solidity to be a very auditable language, something that you can read with high confidence that you understand what is going on. 
uh, some things, some features or lack of features uh, hinder that to different extents. Uh, but that's really what, like, what I would, what I want to see improvements. Not like, oh, you have lambdas. Like, yeah, having lambdas would be nice. Having more ways to reuse code would be nice. Uh, but like, are you just adding features because you want to? Like, what is the end goal? You know, what is the, the design philosophy of language? What are you looking for long term? Uh, and that is what I'm looking for. And I haven't seen. Though again, I'm not familiar with half. Not familiar with many of the newer developments, uh, that is sort of what I would want out of a new language or new tooling or new framework or new way of approaching a problem in general, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think well, one of the really interesting things, something that I'm really enjoying um, you know, working with in Solidity is not really the introduction of, but like this growth of uh, file level like constants and like functions and things like yeah. this, right? Because you kind of get that, you get that certainty with a function when you declare it at the file level, like, you know, these are the inputs, these are the constants, you know exactly what it's going to do, right? And then you can just plug that into your contract later. So when you look at, you know, these file level functions, it's independent of any contract. It's, sure, yeah. you know, strictly inputs and outputs. So de definitely that's, um, that's a big one. So uh, one, one thing that I'd kind of like to ask you, so, you know, part of the reason why, you know, I'm such a, a big fan of Huff here is because I got to, you know, contribute to, you know, some of this code very early on. Uh, well, early on, I guess a, a little bit of background here, you know, it was originally built by Aztec. Uh, this is something that Aztec was working on, you know, for their, uh, for their ZKP engine. Uh, but, you know, eventually it was more or less abandoned, right? And then, uh, you know, a few people recently kind of picked up on it and rebuilt the compiler and, and built like a sort of new version of the language. Um, but so one, one of the discussions that we had here was that, um, you know, where, where do you kind of draw the line of like, what should be a part of the language and what should be external to that, right? And yeah. originally I suggested, oh, we should have a standard library and this can do things like handle custom errors, handle, uh, you know, things like function ABI, you know, things that, that uh, standards that were set by Solidity, but they're just convenient things for us to have here. And, and kind of the discussion revolved around like, maybe instead of writing like a canonical standard library, what if we take this open Zeppelin approach of, you know, everybody can kind of write their own uh, libraries and then people can iterate on it, optimize for different things. So what, what do you think about, um, you know, standard libraries and like, where do you kind of draw that line? Yeah, that, that, open up, that opens up a huge kind of worms and many discussions we've been having over the years because you start straddling the line of, we want, there's an argument to be said for, I mentioned before how some things you can only do with assembly, right? And you just, there are constructs that cannot be really achieved with solidity because it doesn't expose those. Uh, for example, well, delegate call is a recent, uh, a modern example. There's no way to make a delegate call using solidity. You got to drop into assembly. The only way you can use delegate call is if you have uh, a linked library, but that's a very sort of, weird edge case of the language and you really cannot control that uh like there's no way to say reference the address that you're calling and you definitely cannot delete calling to an arbitrary address so there's arguments for why that is that way they go okay sure delete like let giving you tools would be good but we also don't want for you to be able to make mistakes ideally if we can prevent you from doing the wrong thing that's great however Preventing me from doing the wrong thing in many cases always also prevents me from building nice libraries, right? It also prevents me from building 
even potentially safer abstractions because what the wrong thing is when you're working on a compiler like delegate call is oh it's like this dangerous thing hard to understand most people don't get it like at least not on the first try it's like this weird abstraction like dvm execution model is weird and like this notion of context but with the search of one address but with the code of the, like it's all very complicated so let's not expose that and let's only expose a simplified version which is this notion of link tires and that's okay sure but then when I want to use it in a, in a use case where it does make sense, I'm quite constrained by those decisions, right? So what is the right balance between what tools we give you uh, and what we build ourselves because we think, uh, as being in this case, the compiler, because we think this is the only way to do it. Uh, I've, you know, straddled back and forth on this sort of point over, over the years. Um, my take now is that like, Permissiveness is actually fine. But what, what you want is you want for something like, you know, opt out of the seat belt, right? Very, very explicitly, like say, hey, I know what I'm doing. Please give me control of the thing. I'm going to build it carefully. Um, I guess sort of similar to some sense what to what Rust does with unsafe. You know, we're like, okay, inside unsafe, you can do whatever, but like, you're really literally typing the word unsafe. What you're doing is not safe. So it is on you to make sure that this, this works as intended. Uh, I think an approach like that one uh, is a good one. It lets you, like, safe abstractions on Rust are built on top of unsafe. If you only had safe Rust, you'd be quite constrained in what you can build because it's very restrictive in that, in that sense. Uh, but, like, it's not for... It's not meant to be used anywhere. Um, like this is quite all very vague and very you know wishy-washy. What am I even talking about? Uh, but like things like I don't know generics or structs or the fact that structs always go into memory, even though if there's if they fit in a word technically you could have them on the stack, but no, they always go in memory because of like consistent reasons or uh, how generics are handled or how they are not handled. Uh, what the type conversion looks like, uh, whether you can have implicit or explicit conversion between types. All of those shape greatly what you can build when it comes to building a library, right? So if you want for people to build libraries and you want for them to be able to build good libraries, and in this case, good library means, I'll, I'll define a good library as a library that is hard to misuse. And that has been in many uh to a large extent, the guiding philosophy behind developing the open sampling context. We want to make it so that it is very hard for you to use this incorrectly. In many cases, it is not possible to guarantee that that will not happen because the compiler doesn't provide sufficient tools to you know, uh, implement the checks we'd want, or maybe we'd have to add, introduce performance hits. But at least like you'll start typing, you know, like you'll be accessing fields in structs that start with underscore, underscore, and that's like already a very bad sign. You know, it's like typing unsafe. Like, hey, are you sure you know what you're doing? Um, I think not having a standard library is fine, uh, but you gotta, do, you gotta go through the effort of doing that. But more importantly, I think it's very hard if you are, as in this thing, in a relatively immature ecosystem with relatively immature applications, relatively immature, uh, development uh, ecosystem where 
good design patterns, like they're not yet gospel. Like it's people don't know if this approach is better now. It's like wealthy, right? And people they all do whatever whatever they think is best. But you don't, we don't yet have uh, good design practices established. It's all being discovered. So in that sense, if you want to be a compiler and you want for it to be safe, and you also want to be able to cater to all of those use cases, that is going to be extremely hard because you, as the developer of the compiler, are not a user of the language. You're the developer of the compiler. So giving the actual users of the language who are the ones who are dealing with all of these issues the tools to be able to effectively deal with them, to me right now sounds like the better approach, which is a very long way of saying, don't do a standard library, give the developers the tools to build a standard library. But I could have started with that. No, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting to hear your perspective as somebody who's who's gone so deeply on these things, right? Um, you mentioned designing for readability and how important that is. And the mark of a good language or a good library, you said, is one that's hard to misuse? Well, in this context, at least, right? I think Solidity is not like other languages and should have different goals. Uh, I think it's very important for you to read a contract and not be uh, mistaken, not mm. think that something doesn't quite work the way it hints uh, that it might work. So... Mm-hmm. But that may not apply to all languages. In this case, in particular, I think that is like, yeah, top priority for sure. Totally. Are there any good examples that you've either used yourself or you've seen in the space of libraries or patterns or tools that help with readability and some of these uh I guess I guess I, I just would love your your overall perspective on, on good tooling, good patterns that you'd like to see used across the space, maybe besides, you know, just one specific area? Ah, that's a, that's a very broad question. Um, so one thing in, for example, that I think is unfortunate is Solidity lets you access message.sender anywhere. And like, there's like, you can call it like four, four levels on the call stack in a part of function in library, type message.sender, boom, you get the sender. Uh, and what that creates is, you now have a lot of, and this is something that happens a lot of also with storage and such, also with the fact that the EVM is quite constrained in how many arguments you can pass and that passing start arguments is very expensive. You end up accessing global state a lot. You end up having a lot of functions that depend on global state, sort of implicitly. Uh, and in that case, for example, this is something that Viper disallows. Viper only lets you access method.sender in an external function. So the very common pattern of like external function, um, whatever, like permissioning checks, who can call this, if you're this user, like if you're doing an action for yourself, then you can specify some argument, but if you're doing an action for someone else, then you can only use the default that that user has set. There's a lot of that in many systems uh, where you can do stuff for someone else, like for example, claiming uh, yield from different platforms, claiming uh, liquidity mining rewards. There's a lot of, hey, I want to set up a system to claim my rewards, but it kind of like, do it however it wants. So you essentially quickly run into this pattern of external function, checking off some stuff, and then internal function that that's the actual heavy lifting, right? That that's the actual thing. Uh, I'm forcing you to say in the internal function, hey, who is the user in question? Like that has to be an explicit argument. And don't just, you know, pop in message.sender when it's, uh, it's a very small thing, 
but it forces you to do things in that way that I think in this case is better. Whereas in certainty, you, you don't have to do it. You can just do it the other way. You do get some benefits out of the solidity approach, such as you can create a modifier that is like authenticate, or which we actually do use. Uh, and then you just magically access message.sender, so you have an implicit dependency. In general, things that favor explicitness is what I think is good. Uh, like if you can, this also happens a lot when you, there's many reasons why you want very readable and very explicit code. Uh, one of them that is maybe not talked about often is what happens when you, when you get uh, a bug report, right? And you start panicking and go, oh shit, like is everything on fire? Like I need to assess the severity of this right now. Uh, and all of the emergency response that you create is based off of that initial analysis, right? So you, you gotta be sure that you're not getting it wrong. Like you wanna make sure that you fully understand the severity, the impact, so that then whatever measure you take makes sense. So being able to read, reread the code that you, you thought you knew how it works, but now in light of this bug that you had missed, now it works differently. Being able to very quickly gain an understanding of what the new system plus bug looks like and actually works like, that is super important. And you want to be able to do that under stress very rapidly. I guess that, like, that is not, not necessarily a, a solidity thing or a blockchain thing, uh, but I've been in that situation a couple of times. And like being able to reason about this property about the system will hold because the language lets me, you know, I'm using this property of language, like this function is private, are not virtual, so it cannot be overridden. So, like this will always happen, no matter what, right? Or message dot sender is not passed anywhere, so that address will never be relevant. So, if that is spoofed, that's fine because, like, I know it's not relevant. Now, if you magically reference it, you know, in some obscure function because it just you know globally access message dot sender, that sort of goes away. Uh, there are some some things that I'm very happy about. Uh, how we came into designing them. Uh, I'm not sure though if they fit nicely within this. Um, they can let you reason about correctness easily because it turns out that that is actually a very hard problem. Uh, and when I say that's so goal that should be people should strive towards, I'm not necessarily saying that I know what, the, what that path looks like. Uh, a, a very simple example of that is I tend to, we, we tend to rely heavily on inheritance to try to create small modules of things. Even if we're not reusing stuff, it is easier. Just have a smaller file with only the, the things that are related, right? And you might be tempted to go, okay, then I can use some language features here because I can make functions that are private. Therefore, I know they're not going to be called anywhere else. So that lets me reason about when are they going to be executed. Uh, I can also make it so they are not virtual, so they cannot be replaced, which means that this is what they will do. And I can reason about that locally without having the context of the full program. However, then you want to test that program, and it turns out that you, you cannot just call a private function because it's private. That's the whole thing. So if you're testing, and like testing within Solidity and outside of Solidity is, is a whole, whole different topic, but if you happen to be testing, writing tests outside of Solidity, then you need to somehow, what often happens is you get a, a fake mock, sometimes called a contract, 
which exposes these functions, but you cannot expose private functions. So now you need to make it internal. And you need to make it internal just for your testing, or you need to make it virtual because you need to replace some part of it for your tests. But now you have a thing that is saying out loud, hey, potentially, someone is using me outside of this file. Potentially, someone is overriding this behavior. And you got to have that because otherwise you cannot test it. So that's an example of like, I was actually going to thinking about submitting a proposal to introduce like Rockma tests or whatever that skips most like, let me call private things. Let me override non-virtual functions. I don't care about that. Like those cards don't matter in this context of I'm writing a contract that is only going to be used in the context of local tests. So please let me like do the thing that I want to do without compromising my production code. Um, so I actually do a lot of that, which goes very much against my original point of, hey, let's try to make this easily uh, understandable. Um, I think in general, and this is something that people have been saying on for years now, uh, but, it's some, but this is something that hasn't been done. And I think to a large extent because of the huge focus on uh, gas costs, you know, and getting gas costs as, to be as low as possible. And that like immediately takes you to, okay, what are the main source of gas uh, expenses? Storage accesses and calls, right? Like there are by, by far the upcosts that cost the most. Okay, so let's have a monolith that has everything. No need to make any calls. As long as you, run, you don't run into the 24 kilobyte uh, size limit, you're fine. And let's you know, just jam back everything that we can into a single storage slot. Uh, like use 17 bits for this and three bits for that. And like, uh, but just like, that's fine. You know, we do actually also a packet of storage, but being able, using contracts themselves as, um, you know, concepts in your system, abstracting via contracts and introducing uh, interactions between system and building complex systems out of multiple contracts interacting as opposed to a massive monolith that inherits from 17 different files and then like somehow connects them all together. That leads to a much easier to follow architecture and also much more modular and replaceable um, where you can also try to contain damage. You can also try to, well, I gave a, a talk at a conference here in Buenos Aires last week about trying to build multi-contract systems where you can reason about the correctness of each component, even in the presence of failures in the other components, right? If say you have a thing that is minting tokens and you have an emission schedule, right? And the reason why you're minting this is because you have you know, contracts that direct uh, emissions towards incentives for participation in different DeFi products, for example. Sure, you're not going to be able to verify all of that. You're not going to be able to verify that the tokens are being minted to right people. But at least you can verify that you're never going over, you know, the original emission schedule, right? Even if someone ceases control of the minting, even if it is wrong for whatever reason, that property will still hold, right? And you can like continue doing this all over the place. And you end up with a much more robust system with a system that has a lot of redundant checks uh, and that is much easier to reason about its security and correctness. 
However, that comes at a cost. And in this case, the cost is, well, you have multiple contracts. So you're making calls. You are potentially doing the same computation in two places. So that is wasteful. You potentially need to access storage from a different place. So now you, you not only need to read a value from storage, but you need to call into the contract to get it to read from you and then return it. So now it's the call plus an S load, right? Or maybe you go, well, that's quite dumb. So what I'll do is I'll replicate that contract storages myself, which is something that happens like uh, if you ever look at the curve finance code, all of the liquidity mining system, there's a lot of, there's like three different contracts that all know about the emission schedule, when the epoch happens, when the rate decreases, and they do it so they don't need to call into one another to ask for it. They all replicate the same logic because it turns out that that is cheaper, but it makes no sense. It makes no sense that that is the cheapest way to implement that, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, gas is weird, like gas is weird or sort of thing. It's weird that it's so impactful. Uh, and it's doubly weird when you look into, okay, what if gas was not a concern? What if you're thinking of say LQs, right? And you think that LQs are a good solution and that that should maybe be the thing where like the, maybe you, you want to optimize for the LQ scenario, not the L1 scenario. Well, it turns out that what you want to optimize for on an L2 is, absolutely different from what you want to optimize in an L1. It's mostly about call data. It's mostly about the data that is submitted into the L1. So now you have like this massively different worries, like having a function that now takes multiple arguments is a very bad thing. You know, you just have one that takes a bunch of defaults. And if you want to specify some, like pass as little data as you can, because uh, that is the way you reduce gas costs. And that's like just, completely different and you end up you arrive at just you know systems that look like nothing like what the old one counterparts would look like mm-hmm. uh, and again i don't know what the solution is right like it, that is just the way things are but it's unfortunate uh in, in many ways because there, there's like it's not that there's no silver bullet like but it's all of your bullets are actually you know made of i don't know not even metal. Like everything is bad. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's a that's a good note too. Totally. Good yeah. Point. So what I'm hearing is uh, is this focus. Sense. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, sorry, bad joke. What I'm hearing is this focus on readability mm-hmm. over pure gas golfing, right? And I think that makes sense. I mean, one way you can think about that is if you are operating on, like if you're building contracts for Ethereum L1 and you're in this very resource-constrained environment where you really have to think about gas, if you're also deciding to optimize only for gas efficiency, you end up with a system that's not readable and it's very hard to maintain and might expose it to security risks, right? And I think this might be an interesting segue into how your team at Balancer thinks about security overall. I mean, I know you obviously have a great background in security being from Open Zeppelin, you've done audits. How do you guys approach security? I mean, I think you guys, you, you probably hit on some of this already by making the system readable, modular, um, and easy to respond to when there are breakages or failures. But I would love to understand just what the overall philosophy looks like. So I'll start with saying that we have paid uh at least two bug bounties that were exclusively due to you know gas golfing 
like oh we could do this this way but like what if we make it like we adjust it like this tiny like this tiny way and this tiny way uh, and at least two of them were like exclusively because we chose to do it the clever way as opposed to the dumb way and the clever way in some even clever scenario uh, was actually not very clever and was very very stupid Mm. Uh, which makes me now sort of skeptical of those and skeptical not only so something that is also not thought about or not discussed is development time because yeah you can have massive gas policy right uh, we would have spent three more months uh, trying to shrink uh, the bytecode size of one of our contracts to add more features that just didn't fit uh, or to try to you know reduce by another five percent the cost of say doing a swap on balancer. But is that really worth you know launching three months later, right? Is that really going to be the thing that makes or breaks your product? Uh, and I think more emphasis could be maybe a way to put to think about it is to think about this is. If you have an, an issue, right? If you have a, an issue that results in funds being blocked, in you know escalation of privileges that results in bad actors uh, now having access to dangerous functions. If you have any sort of incident that is relatively severe, that is going to push you back so much more than what you could have gained if you like wanted to gas off a little bit. So focusing on security doesn't like get you further, but it prevents you from going back all the way to zero, if that makes sense. Uh, so given that, given how long development takes, given the high stakes of the space as a whole, the, the whole nature of, you know, immutable access, anybody can do the thing, you know, no, there's no preventing that, there's no undoing actions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, essentially a highly adversarial environment, given all of that, uh, our more recent philosophy is to struggle way towards the let's not have any issues, let's make sure we can reason about correctness, about security, let's make this system be obviously correct, then let's try to you know, bring gas costs by, I don't know, 10% or 15% even. Uh, I think you, like, yeah, even if it's like 150, like, it's not going to make or break the thing. People are not going to stop using your your system or use some other like it's it felt like maybe two two years ago, a year and a half ago, like you know, you had Uniswap, you had Sushi Swap, you had Curve, you had Balancer, you have a lot of decks of like all seemingly doing the same thing. There's a lot of stuff like, oh, this costs 100 k gas, but in this platform it's like 95 k gas. And it felt like this was like race to the bottom. Who can trim it down the most? Right? Because if it's 85 here and 90 there. I'm going to go with 85. Uh, but in the end, like, you know, the reasons why SushiSwap has evolved, the way it has evolved, has absolutely nothing to do with gas costs, right? Same with Balancer, same with, I think, Uniswap. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's too early. Maybe we just don't know how to build good applications and try to make them optimal. It's just like trying to run before we can walk. Um, totally. Yeah, we, we very much uh, strive for security. And we tend to, in general, try to well, essentially do the same things that I've been talking about. Try to have, whenever possible, redundant checks that are not like not just waste performance just for the sake of it, but like 
if we have separate systems, try to make it so that each system can guarantee uh, its own correctness and doesn't rely on other actors. Try to make it so, uh, yeah, if you can, if you can split responsibilities in any way, and if you can reason about smaller components, that is always easier. So any anything that gets you, that makes it so reasoning about smaller components results in valid reasoning for the larger system, that, that's fantastic. But that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one interesting thing that, you, it, you know, if not just for the developer experience, that I thought was really cool in parsing through just the balancer contracts was this custom errors library that I found, which uses some assembly to, to bring things together. Can you explain uh, how sure. you guys came up with that and, and what that is? Sure. Yeah. So we're still using Solidity 0.7 uh, for multiple reasons. One of them being that in 0.8, uh, when you have a for loop, you essentially introduce mandatory check arithmetic on the incrementing of the index, which makes me very unhappy. Uh, and in 0.7, there's no custom errors. You just have reverse strings, you know, recent strings. Uh, and what the results in is every single time you want to write a reverse statement, you are inserting a string into your bytecode. And when you have bytecode size limits, those add up very, very quickly. So we had this problem of like, how do we how do we deal with this? You know, it's like we Sure, of course we do want reverse strings, but like we cannot afford, like we don't have the space for them. I think we're like at 36K and 12 of those 36 were just the strings. So massive, absolutely massive. Um, so what we did is we instead, but but we didn't want to give, you know, if you go make a transaction and it fails and like you get an error message on MetaMask or you even send a transaction and you, it fails, like we wanted to give you something to work with. Not just revert it, like have fun. Um, so what we built is a function that instead of being called requires, called underscore require, and instead of passing a string, just pass a number, which is actually uh, a constant of, of uh, an, an enum. Something. It's not an enum. It's like just less massive list of like a thousand constants, uh, which are the error codes. And then each error code, this require function, if it does. Uh, hit a, if the expression is in the end false and it needs to revert, what it does is dynamically it creates a relatively nice string which goes like val as in balancer hashtag number and that is your your string your error message. So when a swap fails, you get like val five hundred four and you go what the hell is this? But if you Google that, the very first hit is the balancer documentation, right? Like, because nothing else uses that. And actually, we found that over time that that is actually a better user experience uh, in on average than having a revert reason because revert reasons, like, they have no context. It's very local, right? It's like, hey, you know, this thing failed here. Like, who knows? You know, subtraction overflow. Well, like, it could have been any subtraction, right? But we find that when you're doing say swaps or you know joining pools and balancer, there's like two really two things that can result in this abstraction overflow error. Right. So we don't say on the dogs, hey, you know, this is because you like try to uh, get a negative number. Likely what happened is you were making a swap 
and you set this value to the wrong number this way, so try this other way, right? Because we we have much more richer context. We know if you go there, right, it, it's because you were using the UI and you got that error. So now it is very highly likely that it is because of this specific reason that you got that message. So that actually turned out being very good because I think if you just got, you know, subtraction overflow, it would have been very hard to, to make progress, right? So the application-specific error codes, I think were a good idea. We actually considered at some point uh, creating like, have the uh, revert message instead of being like val504v uh, HTTP docs.val slash errors 504. But then we're like, A, what if like we, our DNS gets hacked, like someone sees its control inside or whatever. And also we really don't want to train users to just paste URLs from scan into like the browser because it's then very easy for someone to make a contract that interacts with balancer uh, and then errors out with a malicious URL and you have now trained your users to do that. So that was like a very bad idea. Uh, but yeah, that was just born 100% out of the necessity for reduced bytecode size. And there's, again, no tools in Solidity that let you deal with that. Originally, it was even more powerful because it also lets you not just have an error code, but also a value. Often, there's at least one relevant value when you have an error, like, you know, unauthorized account, okay, which account, right? That sort of thing. Uh, so we also admitted that, but we ended up cutting that because it, was, it wasn't that useful. And there is some of that now with the custom error codes in Solidity, which I haven't used mostly because we're not yet on 0 0.8 or even 0 0.9 by the time it comes out, most likely. Uh, but it's sort of like the same underlying concept of like, do you really need a huge string? No, you don't. Uh, that's just, no. Reverse strings were a hack to like get out of a situation a couple of years ago where like there you had no feedback, but it wasn't really a good long-term solution. Right. Yeah, and it's the the custom errors I think are a massive improvement as well. Just you know, in, in my experience working with it, because you get you know that benefit of you can pass values and, and other things like that. There's also the issue of you know if you have a revert string and you want to try to keep it under you know like 31 characters, right? Because yeah. then once it gets bigger than that, you know weird, weird little technicalities, but um, I also really like that it's generated in the ABI as well, right? Because you you have this like, you know, you can basically write like a long error message as the name of the error, but in the code, it's only four bytes, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that was something I was very excited to work on, you know, uh, with the uh, with the Huff library. I think we called it HuffMate, you know, playing off of uh, SoulMate there, right? But, um, you know, I basically like I, I advocated for like, we need these custom errors because this is like, while it's not huge yet, right? Like it kind of requires more people moving to, to 0.8. I think it's absolutely going to be important, not just for, uh, obviously it's good for the users, but it's also good for handling you know, these errors inside of uh, the client, right? Instead of client libraries. And then also within Solidity, I, I noticed there's um, a new way to do that try catch block, right? Where you can not only catch, but you can catch specific error signatures yes. where, you know, like explicitly on uh, an overflow panic, this is what we want to happen or, you know, things like that, so. Very excited about like where where kind of the the error space is going. I guess we've talked a lot with the Solidity team about improving reverse in general, trying to get them to have data. Uh, what does that what does that mean? Like, should they be in the ABI or not? That was also a huge discussion. Same with like enums. Enums are not in the ABI, uh, very famously. 
So you gotta like somehow guess them from the outside. Uh, but yeah, it is essentially a less less powerful version of the customers what we have, but it was like very easy to build and massive bite-bit size series. I think it's something I don't hear people talking about, bite-bit size, I don't like the 24 kilobyte limit. It is the vein of my existence. Um, I don't know, I just find it slightly odd how editing, because I know some teams that do run into it and like they have to massively restructure their application. So, but I just don't see people talking about color density in terms of like certain known patterns that are known to emit very uh, bad code when it comes to how much space they take, even if they're very highly performant. Yeah, in terms of other efficiencies, you guys have implemented a balancer. We were DMing before this about batching within yes. the system. Can you touch on how you guys make use of batching? Um, so if we had a internal, the issue we, we we run into a number of conflicting requirements. One of which is one of the nice things about our single vault architecture, like single master contract, is you only need to handle approvals in a single place, right? And the vault does a very good job of uh, implementing certain security checks. So, for example, it doesn't matter what pool you're interacting with; you can place very strong uh, constraints on, say, the outcome of a swap, and they will be bad, regardless of what a token looks like, what a pool looks like. I mean, of course, it's, it should be a sensible one, right? But it's a it's a very nice piece of software in that regard. So we want to keep interacting with it. Now the issue is. People don't have, in general, smart contract wallets. Uh, like when you want to do multiple actions in sequence, then how do you do batching, right? At what layer do you introduce batching? Uh, I would argue that the proper long-term solution is for accounts to do the uh, configurable. Like I think, I think it's CK Sync that doesn't have EOAs at all, and they're all just smart accounts. I think that is a good effort. But again, uh, gas costs, right? If you use something like the auction wallet that has some overhead that is just unavoidable. So we try to make something that's sort of like opt-in. Because um, the, the second issue we had is we have many, many actions that you would want to do in sequence, but that have a very large uh, impedance mismatch at the interface, right? Like you, you have a swap. Right, and the output of a swap is you get one token out, but then you want to join a pool, and the pool has multiple tokens, so you can be joining in any of them. So, one value out to multiple values in. How do you connect those, right? Or if you exit a pool into a single token, and then you want to swap it, that's a very you know reasonable action you may want to take. You don't want to do two transactions. You don't want to exit and then swap. You just like to just do it all at once, especially if you have like more complex pools where the pool is actually composed of nested pools and it takes onwards. So you need to like just do it all at once for me. Like don't make me, you know, unwind the whole thing in five transactions. Uh, so what we did is we built a system where this core contract does not have an implicit sender, but in every trans in every function call you make you always pass a sender. And if the sender is message.sender, that's totally fine. You just carry on and life is good. But if the sender is not message.sender, then we have a whole system that is dedicated to 
letting some contracts essentially impersonate users. We call them relayers, right? So uh, the balancer governance uh, module can designate, hey, this contract is trusted, it's been audited, so it is now a relayer, which means it can impersonate accounts, but only also if if all of the accounts that it interacts, if, if you as a user opt in into that, right? Uh, we didn't want to give governance power to impersonate you, and we also didn't want for it to be just a decision you make because we were risk. We're worried, what if you like go to a malicious site and they uh, trick you into approving a malicious contract? So it's like two keys, right? Someone has audited, but also you're not trusting them to not uh, rug pull you. And when that happens, these contracts can just uh, send uh, transactions using your address and using funds from your wallet. Uh, and we, I, I mean, it's a bit complicated to explain the nitty gritty of how it works because it has to do with delegate calls and reentrancy checks. And it's uh, it's actually two contracts and not just one. It's a bit all over the place. But we've managed to find a very nice way to essentially script actions that have inputs and outputs that can be stored in sort of temporary storage and later referenced. So for example, you can do an exit into five tokens, store in this temporary storage, all, all of those five amounts, and then follow that up with swaps or staking or withdrawals or whatever, referencing the amounts that you had previously, all in a single transaction from this thing that is just pulling funds directly out of your, out of your wallet and sort of behaving as if it were you. Um, I think batching internal is a very weird problem because you'll, you're tempted to like, what do we do? If we have a, say, approve function, do we want to maybe also add approve many, right? Because like, maybe the user want to do this many times, right? If you want to register a new component, like let's make it an array, but where do you stop? Where do you draw the line, right? Because also doing them, having those be arrays, introduces complexity that in many cases is just unnecessary. So what is the balance? Again, ideally the balance is that you can script things uh, way before you interact with the system, say at the smart account level, that not existing. Uh, I'm very fond of the, the way we've structured this with, you do have one master contract, but it'll, it, under some conditions, you can have people uh, interact with it using your fund, right? So this battery layer will interact with the vault, trigger a swap, but when, when the time to transfer tokens comes, the vault is going to do a transfer from my account, not the relayers. Why? Because of all of the security checks that are in place that guarantee that that thing is correct, that I want to actually use that, uh, so on and so forth. Nice. Yeah. We're bullish on batching at Superfluid as well. There's a there's a batch call feature we have. It, it's fun to push the limits on it. Josh, for example, has I think he's strung like a hundred transactions together before, and he, it, it's fun to push the limits on the UX. But there are complications with it, so I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, that that does sound like a pretty interesting system, though, and I'll have to dive deeper into it at the actual like code level. Mm -hmm. I'm curious though, like with some of the systems you've built, like with the the air library or batching or even like just new protocol features overall, how does the balancer team approach these cycles? Like, do you guys do sprints? Do you guys uh, get together in an offsite and ideate? Like, how do you tend to approach the overall development process? We have multiple sources of feature requests. Uh, the most obvious ones being, 
incident response, like, oh, we made a mistake, it needs to be patched, and that is often the high priority. Uh, there's also, as the application grows more and more complex, there's a lot of technical debt and improving old systems are not robust enough to handle uh, to handle well the act the current workload. So a good example of that is like the current permission system is quite basic, uh, but we it is now managing relatively powerful permissions that control say the emissions of file or like certain relatively powerful actions. So we are currently in the process of a migration towards a system that has delays and uh, important actions can have minimum delays and can be cancelable. So for example, if the signers were to be tricked, you know, if someone were to say impersonate me and provide them false information, or if the forum where the action that they need to approve were to be hacked and they were to sign the wrong thing, it would be on chain uh, during this delay and people would be able to notice and say, hey, you know, this is a mistake, this needs to be canceled. So those are like things that are, it's hard to see the value add because it's like, well, sure, that sounds good. But like, is that really worth spending? Because again, that is not going to drive user adoption. It's not going to, it's not an, an exciting new feature, right? But potentially it is the thing that prevents you from showing up in news in the bad way, in the way you don't want to show up in news. So that's sometimes hard to, hard to measure. Uh, in terms of the actual shiny new features, uh, they're multi, they come from multiple places. Some of them originate internally from within the team, like by virtue of working with the systems, we are familiar with the ways in which our architecture or products are constrained. We know that certain things are hard to do and that some people want to do them. So like, can we think of a way to solve this problem that is maybe hard to observe for someone on the outside, right? Because it's like, it deals with, you only realize that that problem exists after months of trying to solve a different problem and go, oh, shit, like I cannot do this because of this wall that I hadn't even realized existed. So can we turn on, like, can we like improve this? But it's, it's not an obvious improvement. So the things that we suggest and work on more often come from either technical debt or that sort of like relatively obscure issues. Uh, an example to give you an idea of what I'm talking about is you can have when whenever you have a balancer pool, that pool has some uh, is also a token, an LP token, right, which represents participation in the pool. So of course, nothing prevents you from then creating a second pool that has the token of the first one inside of it. You can you can do that. Like you can do it at launch. If you did that, a couple of months down the road, you'd realize that now you have a sort of like certain actions are very hard to perform, and like you're missing data in multiple places as to how to produce certain action because like there's missing things. Uh, but understanding what those missing things are and how this could be made better requires a lot of effort. So that is actually one thing we're working on or, or rather launched a couple hours ago for, for one of the tools, uh, the ability to have composable tools. Um, and then in terms of user or like more community uh, derived requests, those are, it's hard for like just an individual to go to the forum and say, hey, what about this? Uh, like, can we add this feature? Because like, well, sure, but you're just one person on the internet. It's hard for your voice to be heard. Uh, 
So that often works much better when you get, and even if it's one team, right? If say, I don't know, some random team says, hey, it'd be good to have this feature. Okay, yeah, sure, but you're just the one team. So we found that recently there's a lot of cooperation across teams on like sort of, I don't know, mega teams popping up where you have the same set of people working together and like pushing in a similar direction, cooperating and sharing uh, information about, not like secret information, but like just coordinating on roadmap, on priorities and like, hey, we're working on this now, but like four months on the line, we'll have some spare dev time. So like, is there anything you want to do to maybe solve this problem together? Um, that is often where many things come from. It's interacting with multiple teams then saying, hey, you know, we really want, want to launch this new version, but in order to have that, certain component needs to, for there to be liquidity. Now, however, this liquidity needs to have certain properties, like we want to have a liquidity pool and to make swaps, but it needs to have certain properties that the current pool just doesn't have. So now the lack of that pool is a blocker for them, but that's quite indirect, right? You can only sort of spot those things in advance if you're constantly talking to, to these different teams. Uh, mm -hmm. the whole like fully permissionless, you know, fully the, the adversarial environment that I was talking about earlier means that essentially if you can be hacked, you will be hacked, right? If your system is not sound, it'll not survive. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is often as they become more and more complex and everything is more intertwined, it can be very difficult to understand exactly what is holding everything together, right? Why hasn't DeFi blown up, right? Is it a house of cards or is it actually a robust system that is just hard to understand? Uh, and sometimes it is hard to go, hey, I want to like add, you know, this new thing. And like, is that going to topple over? The, like, is that going to break everything? Uh, that assessment mm -hmm. is something very hard to do. We've had scenarios where we start working on something for like maybe two months and they go, oh, should actually, you know what, if we do this and then this other thing happens and then this, like then like this cannot coexist. So that is often useful because it's a, an important learning about, you know, we learn about some properties of the system that it had and we like weren't quite, like we knew in some sense that they were, it was important for those properties to hold, but not to what extent. It's like, oh, right, this is what happens if that, if this environment is not kept. So like, let's make sure that that happens. Uh, but sometimes it's not easy to, to spot those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting quote you had. Everything that can be hacked will, will be hacked. It's like Crypto Murphy's Law, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is funny. But okay, we're coming up on time a little bit. I don't want to. I don't want to take too much of your time. But uh, two final questions for you. We'll try to keep these relatively quick and in succession. First of the final two questions. Let's say that you can't work on a balancer for the next six months. Someone holds a gun to your head and says, "Hey, balancer's amazing. Go do something else for six months." What would you choose to work on and uh, and why? Do I have to work? Can I, can I not work? <laughs> Let's assume you have to work. Let's assume you have to work. <laughs> um, I'm interested in the project that I left, uh, that I was working on at Open Southland when I left, uh, which is now called Defender. It's very interesting in many ways. And it's serving, I think it's quite not there yet. Uh, it's a couple, maybe a couple of years behind in some sense. Um, but, but I think there's a huge gap in terms of 
you want to build a system, right? That system is composed of smart contracts. Okay, that system now is, in many cases, configurable. There's many inputs and outputs. There's many admin actions. There's multi-tiers level of permissions. You have mega admins. You have people who just operate. Like, they're just complex things, and they need some level of maintenance. Um, and you do manage to actually build all of that securely. You do manage to, say, build systems with delays. You manage to introduce certain restrictions in how those can be used and so on. But at some point, you get someone in front of a computer and they need to sign transactions. And all they see is like, oh, this is 700 hex characters. I hope I'm not breaking stuff, right? Uh, that is like, I, I think it's an area in which the industry is like way, way behind. Uh, this, you know, dumbing down of going from this is changing storage slot five from value one to 17. Okay, well, what does that mean, right? Why do I care? And not only what is that, what does that do, but like, what is the risk associated with that action, right? What is the threat model? What could happen if I get this wrong? How important is it for me to get it right, right? And that is not about this action in particular, but like, what about the system? Surely when someone designed the system, they were able to think if this is misused, then this can happen. So I want to know what that is so I can properly assess how important it is for Because you cannot like audit every single thing you do, right? You need to be able to discern, is this important? Is this not important? And everything is just like critical or actually not critical. Like nobody cares about like, yeah, I'll just sign the thing, whatever. I'm hoping everything goes fine. Uh, the same is true for like, end user security, right? Uh, when you sign transactions, probably you have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, I have no idea why things like tenderly simulation, I mean, I do know, like you have, you could easily have tenderly simulations and that happens now on not safe transactions. It doesn't happen on MetaMask because the average user is not able to go like look at a simulation and understand, hey, okay, this, like I'm not going to be hacked. So it's, it's fine to sign this. Uh, so I think there's a little missing in that regard. Uh, and I think what the open Selena team is building with Defender, at least part of that, goes in that direction. That's a worthwhile effort. But actually, I don't want to work on that now because uh, there's a lot of research that, like, I would want to work that, say, maybe a year from now. Or more realistically, I want to use that. Um, the, sorry, did you ask, like, the one place or multiple places? I'll just show a second place. Uh, show a second place, good. The, uh, the work the Nomic Labs teams is doing with Hardhat is fantastic. And not just Hardhat, but also all of the other initiatives uh, they're following. Uh, they're building a second compiler for Solidity, an alternative to Solidity, uh, that is like not meant to emit production code, but meant to act to improve the developer experience in general, right? Like to have a proper language server, to be able to serve a debugger, to be able to serve IDEC in general, to be able to serve linters, uh, to be able to, well, to be able to like even, you know, stop execution midpoint and be able to evaluate outer expressions. Like all of that requires going from source from solidity into something that runs on the EVM, but it doesn't have to be saucy. And they also have interesting plans for, okay, but what is the runtime for it? Because I don't just want Ethereum BMJS, right? I need something else, something that is like, not made for a not made for like just execution, but execution in a very concrete context of I want to be able to debug, I want to be able to have rich information, I want to be able to not spend 
10 minutes thinking, why is this test failing? Thinking very, very hard, thinking, oh, because of this, which is, I find in, in my daily experience, the best way to solve certain kinds of bugs, just because, as I was saying earlier, tooling is so obscure. Uh, so they want to not make it obscure. And I think that is, those are very, and if you ever hear them talking about it, it's very clear that they've done a lot of research about, like, they're not just, you know, yeah, well, whatever, we'll tackle this, but it's a very professional project. So that'll be very exciting. That's really cool. I, I like that. I mean, especially, uh, we, we've noticed as well, you know, uh, both Sam and I being on, you know, developer experience where, you know, developers come across issues and, you know, sometimes it's an issue that, you know, is directly related to us, but sometimes it's actually like a Solidity compiler issue, right? And they're like, well, why is this breaking? And then you have to explain, well, this is what the compiler does. This is why it's not, you know, very good at this, but this is what you should do instead, or this is what this, you know, probably means, right? So, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to see that, like, on the compiler side, and especially having, like, really good support for IDEs, you know, because right now, like, it, it works, you get your syntax highlighting, right? And they'll tell you when you try to import something that doesn't exist, but yeah, but it doesn't really help you as much beyond that, right? Solidity releases a new feature, now right on the parser changes, and now the highlighting is off. So like, you don't want to use a new version because now your syntax highlighting broke because it's not using the same parser. They built a parser just for that. Uh, the, the, the CDO at Nomic actually gave a great talk on this specific topic and explaining why they're doing this last week here at ETH uh, LATAM in Buenos Aires. It should be up on YouTube soonish, so I can send you a link later. So maybe you can add it to the description or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Why that is important. For sure. I love it. Okay. So we got the what you work we we got your work what, the question for which you work on. Final question. All right, this is more philosophical, but let's say we we zoom out, we fast forward 10 years, it's 2032. What do you hope our industry looks like at that time? What kind of impact do you hope it has? What is what does the landscape look like? Would love to hear your long-term vision for what we're working on. Oh, I don't even know what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I think it's very hard to predict, like industry-wide, like what the impact is going to be like on society as a whole. I think it's a safe bet to say today that blockchain will have will be part of society to, to some extent, right? Like it's not going to disappear. I think that is a relatively safe thing to say. Um, I think it's going to go a bit slower than most people think. Uh, every time I've seen, you know, it trying to go mainstream in some sense, it's always either people have no idea what they're interacting with, they have no idea what they're doing or how they're doing it. Most of the infrastructure is not there by a long shot. Uh, and a huge, unlike the huge lack of education in general results in most of the things people interact with being scams, just outright scams. Uh, and essentially it being like fraud to most people, right? Because it is what happened, like they were tricked and their their money was stolen. Um, like the reason why things like USD was so bad was not like whatever, you know, the collapse, like the decreasing EBL over the like, Many of the people who were in, like there were billboards here in the city, uh, massive signs on the streets saying, you know, hey, go into our platform and get 
uh, 15% monthly returns on USD. It's like, that's insane. Like, that is actually illegal, but like they had it. Uh, and the people who were in that platform, who said that sign, they had no idea what was going on. They assumed it was legit because often, you know, investing platforms are relatively legit and they, they lost all of their money. Uh, so I think that's, that is a massive barrier. Uh, and like it is just something that needs to be, needs to be better. Uh, I very much like what teams like Argent are doing in terms of making the managing your own security a sane endeavor, like social recovery, you know, backups, daily limits, you know, all of those safety checks. That, that is how we live our daily lives, right? Like we can ask friends for help. We can count on them. Uh, there is like, if you run into issues, there's someone to go talk to and ask for help. So I think all of those are extremely necessary. I think this, you know, one private key, hover wallet, that's it, is just sheer insanity. Uh, it is in many ways the best that exists today, but it's far from sufficient. So mm -hmm. in terms of like mainstream adoption, I think those are just massive barriers. Uh, and I, I, I don't see like, Good reasons while they'll those things will be improved soon. So I don't think like gas, like gas prices, for example, as the main like the main reason why it doesn't take off. Like, yeah, it, it is a requirement, but it's not what's blocking adoption. Yep. Yep. I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. And I think you're right. My my grandmother is not going to be able to figure out the one private key hardware wallet yeah. uh, scheme. So well, cool. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Where should people follow you online? Is, is Twitter, GitHub? Like, what, What's the best place to, to follow you? I don't have much of an online presence. Uh, I have a Twitter account, but like I barely tweet stuff. But if you want to have Twitter, it's uh, Mr. N. Venturo, uh, as in my name. Uh, I guess you can also have it linked in the description. Uh, you can follow me on GitHub if that is a thing people do. It, it is actually a thing people do. It is. I don't know what is the purpose of that, but like it is a thing. Um, I also paint miniatures on Instagram. So if you want to see tiny soldiers being painted with very small brushes, that is a thing you can do. Nice. Uh, and there's a link on my Twitter. So that's a good reason to follow me on Twitter. Very cool. Very cool. Well, yeah, thanks again. We really, really appreciate it. That's great. Greatly enjoyed this.